0: Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I I really do hope you are feeling well today. Um, If at the end of this teaching you feel it's raised your temperature, please don't come and see me afterwards. So today we're continuing uh, the series on Revelation um, and the letters to the churches. And today we're going to be looking at the letter to the church of Thyatira, and that's found in... Revelation 2, verses 18 to 29. I don't have any slides, which seems like a good choice today. <laughs> um, so re- we'll start by reading in Revelation 2, verses 18 to 29. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called dark secrets... I will not impose any burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches." And we'll finish there. Um, So Athyatara, you've been receiving a bit of history about the different churches over the last few weeks. Um, Athyatara was a city, not an important city like some of the other ones, but it was a city of commerce, um, trade, factories, southwest uh, Turkey, like a blue collar city, somebody has described it as. It still exists today actually, under a different name. Uh, But during the Roman times, it was famous for its uh, textile industry. And if you remember, in Acts 16, there was a lady who was referred to as the first European to be converted, and that was Lydia, and she came from the city of Thyatira. And if you remember, she was a dealer in purple cloth, which was the speciality of that city, was dyeing uh, that purple dye. Um, Thyatira has been an important church, and in fact, the church existed in Thyatira, or the modern-day version of that, until 1922, where it was during the Ottoman um, genocide that uh, they were persecuted and exported or or deported or killed. However, there's still uh, a bishop of Thyatira, and he lives in London, and he's also responsible for the Greek Orthodox Church. Uh, As a place of industry, uh, in Roman times, Thyatira contained many trade guilds. Uh, There would have been one guild for each industry. You could think of it as... um, like a a union, a workers' union. Uh, And these guilds were a major part of the economic uh, and religious life. Each guild would have had its own patron god, deity. Uh, But over all of them, and the guardian of the city of Thyatira was Apollo, the Greek god Apollo. Uh, And interestingly, he was known as the son of God. Uh, And even on the coins of the time, you would have the image of Apollo on one side, and on the other side it would say, son of God. And the way life worked in cultures like this uh, was you would go to the temple and you would worship the gods, you would sacrifice uh, an animal, Um, there would be a lot of rituals, a lot of uh, sexual rituals as well, uh, to get the blessing from your god for your industry or your trade or for your life or maybe for your crops. Rituals were really, really important and your participation in these would have been expected. This was part of the religious life of the city Now, it's often difficult for us when we read Scripture to cross into those cultural boundaries because they're invisible and it's easy to read without realizing that we're crossing over a boundary. And I know I've said this before, and I'll say it again, um, because I can assure you that the city of Thyatira was very foreign and alien to you if you were living in it. If you crossed over into it today, it would be extremely um, different to what you're used to. And it can actually take work to discover like what scripture uh, is saying because you, what you want to find out is what they're saying to those in, in the time it was written before you can find out the truth for yourself. Um, as an example, like I mentioned in the beginning of this about your temperature being raised um, in reference to coronavirus. If you listen to this podcast in 20 years' time when coronavirus has been completely forgotten about, you will have no idea what I was trying to say at the beginning. And that's an example of the missing context um, allows sometimes misinterpretation. Uh, and the Bible is also, and I've said this before, but it's also a library of books, and I brought a bunch of books here as, a, as a, an example. So it's, it's, it's a library of books, um, and that library contains a unified story, um, but it's often easy to pull out a piece of one book, and you take a page, and you might rip that page out, um, and then you read that verse, without the context of the whole story, and that's where you get into difficulties because you're missing the context of a whole story. And the way the Bible works is that each author pulls upon pictures and images from the previous history and reuses those and expands upon them. So when you're reading a verse from Revelation and you're reading the letter to the Church of Thyatira even, it's full of images and pictures that are from the previous history of the story of God through Israel. And it's important not to miss that and just pull out a verse in isolation and then miss the, the, the meaning behind it. So when you read Revelation um, or any part of the Bible, remember that you're entering into a story. You're not reading a YouTube video on how to do you know, your next hobby. You're not reading into a, a, a set of rules. You're reading into a story. And that's really important. And And that story... The story of the church, of the letter to the church of Thyatira, or the story of any of the characters in the Bible, um, it has major implications for your own personal life. uh, And more profound than if it were a set of rules, or if it were just simple instructions. Uh, When you enter into the story, the, 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 the implications for your life and your story become really significant. So when you read Scripture... Take time, absorb it, meditate upon it, let it sink in, uh, understand that you're reading part of a story. And why is this important and why do I uh, emphasize this again? And the reason I do is because God always comes to you where you are in your time and space. So when you read scripture, you're reading about God's interaction uh, with the characters of the story in their time and space. But the point of the book and the point of the Bible is not so that you will learn the history of how God dealt with somebody 2,000 years ago. And it's not even that you would learn the history of Israel. It is so that you can encounter God, the personal God, today, where you are at in your culture, in your time, and in your personal life. So, having said that, I wanted to jump back into um, Revelation. Read verses 18 to 19. To the angel of the church in Thyatira writes, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. So interestingly, Jesus starts this letter to remind them that he is is the Son of God. That in itself is a political statement. And it hasn't actually changed today. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the ruler of the world. No one else. And uh, Jesus also begins the letter in the same pattern that he starts all of the other seven letters, uh, and he starts by saying, I know where you are at. He knew the details of their situation. He knew the people. He knew the individuals. He knew their thoughts. He knew their actions, both good and bad. He knew that in this church they seemed to be growing, growing. They had love and faith and perseverance. They seemed to be serving the city. Jesus was aware of what's going on. And when we read this for ourselves and realize that God wants to encounter us today where we are at this morning, Jesus says the same thing to us. He says, I know your situation. And my question is, do you believe that that is true? Do you believe that it's still true? Do you really believe that this morning that God knows where you are at? And how does that question make you feel? Does that make you feel afraid? Does it comfort Are you feeling cynical that God doesn't really know where I am at? And where are you this morning? What does Jesus see when he looks into the detail of your life and of your mind? And even on a broader um, picture, where is this church? Where is the Connect Center? Are we in a place of growth? A place of stagnation? Are you in a place of pain? Are you doing well? Are you struggling? Where are you this morning? And do you believe that God knows and is intensely interested in your situation. It's not just that he knows everything and he knows where you're at, but he's interested in you and your situation, and that he wants to meet you where you're at today. Not tomorrow, not when you've fixed yourself up a little bit and you feel improved, but where you're at today before you rebuild the mask, this morning, See, God is always wanting to meet us where we're at, not where we want to be, in a way that makes sense to you. So this is an invitation for you to open your minds and the possibility that God knows the detail of where you're at and that he wants to meet you there. So if I think of the story, an example of this, like I think of the story of Abraham and Isaac. And if you remember when um, Abraham goes to offer Isaac on the altar, and we look at that, like, again, we're in a completely different culture. But we look at that and go, like, that seems like a very strange request. Like, could God ever, is that really God's intention? Like, could God, what, what was he doing? Why didn't Abraham even protest? Um, But think about where Abraham was and the culture that he lived and what God was doing with him. And Abraham lived in a culture where that was normal. It was normal to sacrifice your kids to your God. That was part of what was expected in the worship of the culture around him. And God meets him there. God meets him there to ask him to do something that looked normal to him of what a God would ask you to do. And God meets him where he's at. But he meets him there to move him on in his understanding about who God is. So when Abraham comes to offer Isaac, God says, "No, this is not what I am like. If I require a sacrifice, I will provide the sacrifice." So God God meets Abraham where he is at. Again, to us looking in the outside, outside, looking back thousands of years, it looks really strange. But for Abraham, he was meeting him where he was at. And he was bringing him forward in his understanding of God. And that's what God does. Like He meets us where we're at in a way that makes sense to us today. So reading on um, in Revelation, verse 20 to 23, Jesus says to the church of Thyatira, Nevertheless, I have this against you, You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants in the sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. Unless they repent of her ways, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am He who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. So this is another example of where, like, we're in a story, and this verse uh, is written to a church, and um, to uh, in in a in the Bible. That's part of a larger story. So you are almost expected to know the story, um, but this story refers to what happened with the Israelites many years before. um, And it comes out of 1 Kings chapter 16. And it's a story of Jezebel and King Ahab. And King Ahab was a king of Israel who married uh, a princess from a neighboring kingdom. And um, there's a long backstory there, which I really don't have time to go into. But essentially, Jezebel, who worships uh, Baal, uh, who was one of the neighboring... Uh, kingdom 's religions uh, when she marries King Ahab, she persuades him to bring the worship of Baal to Israel uh, and, and encourages uh, the people in Israel to worship an alternative gods and included in that were like fertility pools that they would place around the country where there would be sexual rituals to encourage like a good crop uh, or, or a harvest um, but essentially what she does is she encourages and she doesn't immediately replace God. Like she doesn't just wipe out Yahweh and replace it with Baal. She brings in an additional um, worship. So it's not just God. And we brings in Baal to worship alongside and additional rituals. And it was something that the Israelites had struggled with for years, was like worshipping only God. And Jezebel uh, brings back that uh, tension and uh, that's, that um, temptation. So it seems that something similar was happening in the church in Thyatira. Probably somebody not named Jezebel, maybe not even a woman, I don't know. Because um, remember, Revelation uses imagery and pictures from the past to convey its message. Uh, but there was a teaching, it seems, from an individual or a group that encher- encouraged the church at that time to compromise and to continue with the recognised uh, powers and practices of the people around it. I think there is a warning for us as a church even here, because uh, this church it seemed to be was growing, um, and although healthy things grow, growing things it seems are not always healthy um, and when, when we read this, like we might think you know I would never do that, like I would never sacrifice to idols and go into sexual immorality like that with those rituals that they had, but remember, you're in a different context, and for the people in that context, that was the normal thing to do. That was the recognized religious practice of the day. It wasn't abnormal. It wasn't frowned upon by society. It was expected by society. The recognized religious practice of, of Rome was worship and sexual rituals and, and uh, sacrificing of idols and eating a meal together and sharing that in honor of the God that was the recognized practice. So you're in a different place than that, but the core issue is the same because you have recognized practices around you that are maybe not trying to replace God initially, but are coming in alongside. So let's imagine a role play for a second. You know, just pretend my name is Sergius and I'm a new follower of Jesus and Thyatira. I'm a member of a textile guild. Um, they provide me with my job and income. And there's a temple down the streets where we normally meet to worship uh, Apollo, who's the god of the city. And what goes on in that temple is there's meals to honor gods. Uh, we would worship to Apollo and, and Zeus, um, or Zeus, and uh, to our god of whoever god we have for our, um, for our, our guild. Um, so let's say I get invited by my friends, I'm a new Christian, but I get invited by my friends and they say, hey, you know our friend Circeus, he's offering an honorary sacrifice, he's opening a new textile shop and he wants to have good business and good trades, so we're going to the temple to offer and to give an offering to Apollo, so come on Sergius, come and join us, come and help bless my friends. So what do you do? <laughs> Is it harmful to go and join your friends? Now if you don't go, you're really going to offend them. And, and plus you'll not be supporting your trade guilds. You might even get kicked out and lose your job. If you do go, you're going to be affirming the power of the idol that they're worshipping and the ritual. So what do you do? Uh, there's a book by a historian, Laurie Hurtardo, and it's called Destroyer of Gods. You can get it on Amazon. Um, and he says, he's a historian, not a theologian, so he, he tra- traces the history of the Christian church, in the early Christian church in, Ro- in Rome. And he says, in the withdrawal of the newly converted Christians from the uh, ubiquitous veneration of the gods in public and family environments, it was seen as abrupt, arbitrary, unjustified and deeply worrying to the romans all of these gods governed various arenas of human and one's family human life and one's family and the city and national gods were the guardians against plague and fire and disaster refusal to participate in their worship would have been taken as disloyalty to one's family to one's city and as disregard to the welfare of one's neighbours. So again, to honour Jesus in that situation, it's full of political significance. It's a political statement. Now, you don't live in this world, but has anything changed today? If when we say Jesus is Lord doesn't have a political significance in what we do, then we're probably not understanding what Jesus meant when he said, Jesus is Lord. Mm -hmm. So my question to us and myself today is, what is the expected uh, practice of worship that our culture expects of us to be a good citizen and to protect the state and to care for your neighbor? Because idolatry... It's about the worship of power. It's about exalting whatever power is at work in the world. So, what power are we worshipping alongside God? Is it money? Is it success? Is it comfort? Is it having a nice house? Materialism? More stuff to make us happy? Is it digital addiction? Is it youth and the pursuit of youth? Is it sex? And the list could go on. What are you worshiping? Now, of course, you would never put these ahead of Jesus, and you would never replace Jesus with these in your life. You would just bring them alongside. (laughs) Just like Jezebel. Jesus says that he is the one who searches hearts and minds. Unwillingness to repent of the worship of idols will lead to death and suffering because the wages of sin is death. Because the exaltation or the worship of any power that does not originate in him is idolatry. Life only comes from God. He is the source of all life. Repentance is a beautiful thing, but we can often get distracted by the words. Uh, repentance. The word repentance is not a holy word. It's an English word, translation of another word. Um, so don't get distracted by the word repentance and the hang-ups that it has from your past. Look at the meaning of the words. And the, the meaning simply means to look again, to rethink to turn around. So I want to take just a couple of minutes to play a song and to give you space to rethink if there's any areas that the Holy Spirit would bring up in your life that you are bringing alongside Jesus and giving worship to and that you maybe need to rethink and to turn around. So I'm just gonna play this through my phone. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called dark secrets, I will not impose another burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces uh, like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is not a book of condemnation. This is not a letter of condemnation. It's not designed to punish. This is a message from the coach on the side of the pitch. And he's cheering you on to overcome. He's willing you to look again and to rethink so that you can be faithful to the end. This is a message from the one who is on your side, who has your best interests at heart. Just as John says in the beginning of Revelation the one who loves, the one who has freed us from our sin by giving us his very life. This is a call to overcome. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to you this morning. I'll just close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you that you come and you meet us where we are today. We don't read about history, we read to encounter you where we're at, Lord, today. In the midst of this fear that is around the world at the moment, Father, we encounter you and we listen to what your spirit is saying to us today, Lord, and we repent of those times when we take on the gods of the culture around us, Lord, and when we worship things alongside you and then in the midst of that your authority gets diminished and we say and we return around to you and look only to you and commit our allegiance to you. And we say, Lord, that you are Lord. You are Lord over the world, but you are most importantly Lord over our life and our decisions and our thoughts and our choices.